You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we discuss and debate what's going on in the world of rule-based investing right now. My name is Niels Kastelassen, and I am, as usual, very excited to welcome Jerry Parker and Moritz Siebert to uh, another round of discussions after a what can only be described as another challenging week in the world of trend following, but of course also a challenging week, I think, for a number of alternative investment strategies and, of course, a challenging week for the long only investor in equity. So quite a few things happening right now. Um, why don't we just jump into it and talk a little bit about what were some of the return drivers uh, and potential changes in trend um, that we observed uh, this week in the various uh, strategies that we are involved with. Um, who wants to go first? And, and hi, by the way, it's good to have you here. Hi, Niels. Hello. Hey. So what happened on on your side this week, Jerry? We always start with uh, Moritz, so why don't we change that up uh, this week and start with you and see what was going on in in your part of the world, so to speak? Well, obviously, um, I was very keen every chance I could get to take a look at what was going on in the stock indexes and how that was going to impact my single stock positions. I, Since I do trade um, single stocks only and no indices, I was not uh, short <clears throat> maybe some of the uh, European indices that uh, had sort of looked like more of a downtrend than the U.S., but I did have some uh, single stock uh, that I was short. Uh, so not a great uh, exposure on stocks, but um, still a little painful yeah. this week. Uh, some some of the laggards tried to rally midweek, but then at the end of the week, uh, some of the worst performing stocks, uh, GE, AT&T, had really bad Fridays. So <clears throat> the dollar hung in there. That was nice. Small positions, uh, short bonds. And those rallied, obviously. And uh, energy, crude, heating oil, unleaded, sold off a little over the this week. So uh, diversification and uh, was important and will be important going forward. So I had a friend tweet something this week, um, a little cryptic, that said, uh, I think most investors are afraid of their portfolios. And my response back was, yeah, they should be afraid if it's mostly stocks, long only, passive. They're probably not afraid enough. So bad week for us, but we're we're in good shape, uh, I think, going forward as it compares to probably less diversified investors. Yeah, no, I mean, couldn't uh, agree more. We we saw a slightly different uh, thing on, on our side. We actually didn't uh, lose money in equities because, as you suggested, Jerry, we we had already gone uh, short the European side in a meaningful way, and overall net exposure in in, in our portfolio is is actually net short uh, equities uh, from from a few days ago. So that was okay. But where 
where it did hurt was the rally in bonds because that's been a big uh, area for us in recent months. So, uh, you know, made good money so far this year, but we certainly gave back some of that uh, this week and this month. Um, so a tricky one. And on top of that, certainly energy didn't help uh, with those uh you know, corrections continuing. Um, but then, as you say, currencies did okay. And com- other commodities, uh, I think there's one or two markets that stood out, but I can't remember which ones they were. So so overall, uh, uh, you know, uh, another diff- another really difficult month in, 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 you know, as we get closer to the end of October. Uh, somewhat similar, yet, yet different from February, I would say. Uh, even though the numbers are are getting close, but uh, in a in a in a different way. Um, but as you say, I mean, this is the transition phase of 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 a systematic portfolio where, you know, we will change positions, we will adapt, and we will get ready for for the next uh, big moves. And um, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if this, um, you know, volatility and 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 the troubles we see in the equity space, if that's not going to continue, um, you know, for a, a, a little while longer. So we'll see about that. What about you, uh, Moritz? Um, how was your week? Yeah, negative week on my side too. Uh, although not quite as painful as the week before. So that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah. I guess one of the <laughs> negative things here really is that the year-to-date performance has now changed into negative ter- territory. Uh, never a nice thing to see, but that's what happened. But at least it's been a while. It's it's taking you a, a while to get down to those numbers. We I think yeah. most most of us got there somewhat earlier this year, Moritz. Yeah. So you've done well. So um, so that has uh, that has happened, and I mean, kind of funny. We're seem to be making uh, you know, P in the same kind of markets. Uh, most of the losses were from uh, the bond positions. So you know, uh, short treasuries and. And those rallied. Um, um, the dollar provided some stabilization, so we're long the dollar against most of the other currencies, and that that was good this week. Um, losses in the energies, and and also some losses still in the equities, um, even though position sizes there are relatively small. But you know, wrapping it up, a negative week. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of, uh, I know we had talked about when we started this series that we would also try and identify some interesting position changes or trend changes and i don't know about uh your side but as i mentioned on our side certainly the equity overall exposure did change during the week from long to short so that's obviously a a relatively big change in the sense that it's been a while since we've been overall short in um in uh, in the stocks um but other than that i did not really notice any bigger changes i don't know if you had any on on your side at all this week none that are meaningful no Mm, no no. none that are meaningful i don't want to get too excited about low equity exposure or shorts because i remember back a few times where all of a sudden we get we get where our lawns get blown up we distraught we go short we're so happy and then the market rallies to new highs so i know that's (laughs) you know whatever crap can happen and may end up happening. I just, I'm not a tape reader. I, um, we're long-term trend following and paying attention to daily price action is not something I've found that I'm good at, but it was, it was interesting this week to sort of see any big rally just almost immediately be sold. And 
Dow up 500. Uh, all of a sudden, no fear whatsoever. Make it go up 600. That's fine. Uh, just people would just come in and start selling. And then, so that was kind of interesting, the weakness. And it's almost like the algos are out there searching for cracks and they find them and regardless of uh, a positive day here and there. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else that caught um, sort of your attention this week? We've got tweets, we've got questions, um, but I wanted to also maybe talk about some of the articles. There's obviously quite a few uh, floating around right now. Um, not many of them are, are particular uh, positive um, one article that uh, that that uh, I think most of us saw uh, from Mark uh, this week. Uh, I just know that noticed that it had a funny ca a cartoon because it was a cartoon that said something like, "You know, my mother always said it's fine to be wrong, um, but she never worked at a hedge fund." So I thought that was pretty poignant. Um, that uh, that's often the sentiment that um, you know we uh, we get that it's not a it's not great when when we quote unquote are, are wrong in, in in our positioning. But anyway, what what articles uh, caught your attention this week? <laughs> Big silence. Big uh, silence. Yeah. There, there, were, I mean, there, there were a couple. I, I enjoyed reading an article about um, uh, William Eckhart, uh, who Jerry obviously knows very well. Um, and about his firm uh, in Chicago and, and what he's been up to. So trend following trader like like three of us. Um, there were a couple of articles I found on Bloomberg about um, the performance of CTAs recently. I think one had headlined something with there's blood in the streets because, uh, well, uh, CTAs didn't deliver, so to say, in the past uh, two or three weeks. Whereas apparently still many people expect them to produce those magical crisis alpha returns every time the S&P takes a dip. So um, it, it hasn't happened. Um, I, I think that's perfectly fine and, and, and normal, like looking at the systems that, that I'm looking at. Um, they just behaved exactly in the way I would expect them to behave given the market environment. So there just wasn't that immediate short-term crisis alpha available there. Um, and but but just maybe one one addition to that, and that just you know it's probably just my opinion, and I can't really base that on any on any fact. But you know, having looked at the past say ten days or so of of market returns, it, it seems to me that volatility is is back, and this um, kind of like. Every time something happens, people buy the dip and things go immediately back up and it's all very smooth and all very uh, low volatility uh, back to like this controlled market environment. I, it, it felt to me as if there were some cracks in the market in, in the past, say, two weeks, two to three weeks where we had a like dower, a lower, like lower and and then there was more pressure. There was more selling pressure. Some of the uh, kind of like, you know, the, the technical support levels, they didn't hold and it, you know, fell through that. And we saw that in a couple of markets and, and some of the individual stock names and the indices. Um, so there seems to be a larger shift uh, happening at the moment compared to, say, February, where it's been a very short-term spike um, it washed a few people out, volatility went up, but immediately came back down and we were back to normal. Yeah, I mean, 
again, not based on any particular article, but I, I do a little review every week uh, for, for our clients. And uh, and I was noticing yesterday as I was writing it uh, that when you go back, and it's not trying to make a prediction about what's going to happen, but but certainly there's been a couple of years in recent times, uh, if we go back to 2007, if we look at 2013, where... There were some really, you know, relatively high uh, monthly losses in the trend following space. And then that was really, um, you know, that was preceding two very, very strong periods, uh, probably the two strongest periods we've seen in the last 15 years or so, uh, namely 2008 and 2014. So, so, so I just wanted to make that statement to uh, our investors that this is not unusual, first of all, um, and it's quite often something that we see when there is some kind of transitioning uh, in, in, you know, in the markets happening, and and that may lead to to as you say more volatility uh, down the road, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I've noticed that in that, but in a slightly different way that that you're mentioning more. It's, um, but I do think it is interesting. I think you mentioned another point, which I'd love to debate with you guys, and that is this notion about you know crisis alpha and 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 that there are definitely forces out there uh, that uh, suggests that CTAs are meant to be there as a hedge every time something happens to the equity markets, and I think that obviously we know that. You know, a lot of investors would love if that's what we can do. And some managers can do that to some extent, at least. But I do think it's a misunderstanding if they think that that's really what trend following is all about. And and I think we need to get away from, you know, uh, quote unquote, are we a hedge to equities? Um, my answer to that is no, we're an uncorrelated return stream in our own right. We just happen to uh, you know, do well, generally speaking, when there is a prolonged crisis. And I'm sure that's where the crisis alpha comes from. But crisis alpha doesn't mean a three-day event or a five-day event or even a, a, a three-week event, uh, in my in my opinion. But I do think it's something we have to address more and more often now uh, and kind of defend what trend following really is about because it's being it's being sold or promoted um, you know, in a different light, um, and and but it's not the medium to long term uh, systems that that I'm familiar with, at least. I agree. What have you got? Yeah, yeah absolutely agree. And uh, I don't, I don't, I don't even use the word um, um, as far as uh, my trading is concerned. And also, what what I'm baffled about is um, what what is a crisis actually? I mean, most people seem to equate crisis with a drawdown in the S and P 500, but the S&P 500 or equities, um, that's just one element of a diversified trend following trading system. So what about if the crisis is in oil, like moving from 140 down to the 30s? Is that a crisis? Apparently, it's not a crisis, but it has been, you know, a very good return driver for us. So it, 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 it only seems to be S&P related, as if that were the only asset uh, we'd, we'd be trading, whereas that's, um, that's just not uh, true. But isn't it? But but more, it's, isn't it just reflecting the 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 fact that and and we know that actually bond markets are even bigger than equity markets, even right. though a lot of bonds nowadays are bought by central banks, so they're not even out uh, with the public. But 
But I guess it is a reflection that a lot of the investors we deal with, they predominantly own equities, right? Um, yeah, that, that may be true. They also, I think, own a lot of bonds, right? Yeah. But I mean, first of all, the, the thing is, why, why is it always a crisis if the S&P goes down? Why is it never a crisis if any of the other markets go down? But okay, yeah. let's let's just accept that, right? So it is the S&P or equity markets in general that that have a drawdown. And every time that happens, say they those markets are down 10%, then we are in that crisis mode. Um, okay, well, if if that move continues uh, for a longer period of time and becomes even larger then you will expect and you will see our systems uh, take a short position and and hopefully we'll then make money from that from that position and you know um, counter some of the long only equity losses but it's just not going to be immediate or it would be an extreme extraordinary circumstance and, and uh, if if you know a system changed exactly on that point and like as of the next day we're short i mean it, it, it can happen theoretically or practically also but it's well it wouldn't be medium to long-term trend following it could be short term but certainly wouldn't be medium to long term if it did uh, yeah but i mean you could run a long-term system which is very close to changing a position from say long to short and then at that point kind of like something happens and the next day or the day after you're you're, you're changing your position i mean it, it, it could happen it's just not very likely you brought up something earlier, Jerry, uh, not in our conversation that we're having right now, but something we, when we were just uh, getting ready for this, that talked a little bit about, um, you know, equity returns, equity drawdowns versus CTA returns, CTA drawdowns. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think to some degree, not only do CTAs have to explain their performance as it relates to the systems and the markets that they trade and the shorts that they trade, they also have to choose a certain amount of leverage. And very few hedge funds or CTAs are targeting, you know, similar return drawdown that an S&P has historically had, 8% return and a 50 plus percent drawdown. So I think this week, especially there's headlines that CTAs lost more money than the S&P and some of that is due to the leverage and their expected annual return, at least according to all of us, uh, when we do our research and backtesting would be far greater than 8%. Not an excuse, just kind of an explanation of how the returns can not only not uh, provide uh, crisis alpha in a, in a certain week, but actually be worse um, because our expectation of profit and drawdown is looked at over 20 or 30 years of uh, analyzing the markets and um, <clears throat> we're coming up with methods and systems and ideas that are going to work and have worked over a long period of time, but not, not that reliable on a weekly basis. Yeah, no, I, I completely uh, agree that that, that definitely um, you could say many many strategies are held up to a very high standard when it comes to that in terms of expected returns, but also expecting to have relatively um, shallow drawdowns, which is um, which is difficult to deliver in the long run, and maybe this is part of the problem. Uh, at least, in, this is sort of uh, one of the things that I've been pondering. And that is a lot of these strategies that we know of today, take risk parity and risk premium, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't really been around for that long, um, you know, maybe 10, 15 years. So 
and and in that period of time, and and I know we've talked about this on this podcast, uh, you know, before, and in you know that last ten years is really abnormal in terms of the relationship between equity and equities and bonds compared to the the very long run. So I'm just wor- I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm worried, but I I'm wondering whether the whether investors are being um, you know, said expectations for alternative strategies have been influenced by the fact that a few of these younger strategies have actually done really well, but they've done really well in an unusual environment and over a relatively short period of time. Because um, there is some math behind this, but the longer you go out, you should expect your drawdowns to get bigger. That's how the math works because there's a higher probability that over a 50-year period you could have a bigger drawdown than over a three-year period. That's just the way it is. So anyways, I think I think it's something we, well, I guess for the three of us who've been doing this for, for a while, we it's nothing new that every time you have one of these events that that we have to uh, we have to play defense a bit and and uh, explain our uh, you know our views and I think uh, luckily I think uh, a lot of the investors who have been around this space for a while they they understand and they acknowledge it but uh, you know we're obviously trying to educate new a new bunch of investors to to uh, diversify into these strategies and 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 that obviously is never helpful when you see a period like this and with headlines uh, as we've seen but speaking of headlines jerry top tweets were there any any good ones this week any new records perhaps a uh, new record was set uh okay we talked last week about how i feel like uh, i learn a lot from reading about howard marks who's not a trend follower uh, quite the opposite and he has a lot of wisdom which we talked about last week and then we have another a non-trend follower, non-futures guy talking this week, and this one set a new record. Never had as many retweets and loves as I got on this one uh, from Jeffrey Gunlatch. And um, I'll just read it. Uh, And this, I pulled this out. This is a quote from him. By far the best investing book is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Everything in that book is absolutely true about how markets work, how human nature works, the mistakes people make, the greed that they have, the ways they get themselves in trouble. So I think this is a very popular book. Maybe this is what uh, the search picked up and people just wanted to show how much they love this book. But also, it's a reoccurring theme with the people who follow me on Twitter. Um, they, uh, the, the mechanical trading, the systematic trading that we do, the trend following, most feel is based uh, the truths of that and why it works is sort of based in humans, human biases and psychology. And it's just people, I, I believe, saying, um, I appreciate diversification and systems and trend following uh, that it helps me avoid these mistakes and greed and other ways of getting ourselves in trouble. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Is, am I Am I right? What do you want, um, March, to go first? Or I, I think uh, everything in that book, just as uh, Jeffrey says, is uh, is correct. And you know, I, I actually have uh, multiple versions of that book uh, here at home in my office. Um, you know, one one that I bought myself, and then I told people that I really like it, and uh, got one as a present, and then 
purchased one that had some special drawings from Edwin Lefebvre when you know he published it in the newspaper back in the day. So it's it is one of my favorite books, and a lot about in that book is about trend following and emotions and fear and greed and and how markets work. And if you came to the conclusion, well, that you know this is a uh, hundred or so years ago, and therefore it's no longer relevant. Well, I think it is. Um, you know, markets, they, you know, change and technology changes and, um, you know, the way people trade with each other, that changes. But at the end of the day, it's still people that do trades and some of those people make up the markets and their emotions, their biases, their human attachment to PL, to money, that doesn't seem to change. And that creates, that creates tradable markets. Yeah, and it's also an interesting source, right? Uh, you know f- that that he talks about uh, Jeffrey talks about this book, right? Because I, I, I guess it's well known within our industry, and 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 it's been a while since I read it myself, but I, I agree, it's a, it's a great read, uh, and it's a very timeless read, um, and um, but a lot of people maybe outside our little world may may not be familiar with it at all um and um but it's interesting that you not just hear that from the trend following crowd like we are but but even from someone who's certainly not known for for being a trend follower as far as i'm aware um uh, that he would that he would quote from from that like i said everything in that book is is real great apart from the ending, I think, uh, which is not covered in the book, I, if, if I remember that correctly, but I think Jesse Livermore, uh, who's the character in that book, um, committed suicide at a later stage in his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Other great treats this week, uh, Jerry, that got a lot of love and attention? Well, just to comment uh, before I, I, I read another one, um, it reminds me of the Moneyball book. And when I read Moneyball, sure. And when I read uh, Reminiscences, it's all about trend following, I, you know, but then all of a sudden you see other people in other areas of investing, uh, they try to adopt it as their own as well. So uh, you would think that Moneyball and Reminiscences are, are only for us systematic trend followers, but nope, other people in other industries or other areas of finance can figure out a way to uh, make it sound like it's it's theirs as well. So that's fine. Um a follow-up uh, tweet to that, which was the second most popular uh, from the same article, quote, it's all exactly the same. We can have the internet, we can have algorithms, we have robo-advisors, we have drones. You know what? It's all just human nature, and it hasn't changed. It's not going to. So sort of the same theme there, but I guess I have to say that it's in our best interest. We want this to be true. We're bombarded with trend following doesn't work, uh, periods where it doesn't work well. And we just desperately need for human nature not to change because we see that as a cornerstone of why trend following works. And so I I do think it's in our self-interest and uh, to believe that. And it's probably true that it hasn't changed. But uh, I think we need to just uh, recognize that – that maybe it's not as objective. Maybe it will change. Maybe there is a way for the world to uh, adopt auto- automa- uh, automation, AI, machine learning systems to where it'll be very rare 
that human emotions and biases and human nature are allowed into the markets anymore to influence them. Kind of a downer, but uh, I think it's just interesting. All of a sudden, I get five likes, t- 10 likes, and then 50 and 350. And they all usually revolve around things we all want to be true. Yeah. 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 I mean, we were talking about this uh, as well before we started a little bit about when you look at the manager space today, right? There are some managers who really do trend following the way they did it back in the 80s, right? Or 90s. And it's very volatile. And usually those type of strategies are not favored by investors. So they the AUM is small, but you know, from time to time, they deliver really, really strong returns, um, you know, right when you need it, so to speak. But, you know, a lot of other managers, in, you know, probably somewhat influenced a little bit, you know, ourselves is, okay, so we we evolve and, and we recognize the fact that outside influences such as investors' preferences, you know, so we try to make it better. We try to to have a higher sharp ratio and, and do different things to improve um, because that's what people quote unquote want us to do and want to buy. But when you do that, there is obviously the risk that you lose some of the things that people really deep down want from us, which is what we're talking about right now. You know, it's been a difficult year and it may be the beginning of a difficult period for equities. And right now what people really want is something that can make money for them in their portfolios as equities and as bonds have done uh, or, you know, previous in the year uh, have had a tough time. But it's that balance between staying true to what we uh, probably know is will work, but it just doesn't look as nice uh, you know, while you're in it. And so people don't want to buy it. They only want it in selected periods. Um, you know, so that, that's the, that's the challenge. How do you bridge those two things? We must stay vigilant. We must wait. We're preaching long-term. So we need to be there when everybody starts to agree. Why did you change? Why weren't you there? And so that's, I think, even worse than living through a bad year or a bad period and being criticized is when that yeah. opportunity comes. Hey, look, we did a great job in 2008. That was a crisis. 2008 itself. Can you imagine trying to debate and argue? Uh, how did you do in 2018 prior to, uh, you know, the few, past few years? I provided crisis alpha. Well, that's strange because before October, there wasn't much of a crisis. Now, was there? <laughs> no, there wasn't. So yeah, this is all in people's heads. Now, January 2008, the S&P hit a 200-day low. In January 2008, hit a 200-day low. What followed that was tremendous crisis because we trade a lot of different markets and we go short and we have a systematic approach. We did well. So that's the crisis. I'm not, if we happen to do well in a bad month or week for stocks, great. But we just have to get it. We can't listen to this. We have to be ready. And uh, when our opportunity arises, uh, and we're not going to get a lot of love before that. No. And hopefully people who uh, believe in trend following like the three of us do, uh, you you take a little bit of uh, comfort in your day from the fact that we are trying to help each other uh, stay the course and, and not get too uh, bogged down by a bad year or a bad month, uh, you know. 
Good stuff. Um, do you want to? Are there any more tweets, Jerry? We should uh, highlight yeah, before do, we take a couple of questions. Yeah, let's do one more. Um, yeah, got a lot of likes. Uh, a week later, the same guy, Gunlatch again. Okay. Um, people liked this. Uh, I believed everybody was intellectually objective and honest. I didn't understand why I couldn't convince people of almost mathematically analytical arguments regarding markets. After years, I realized people want to be told what to do, told what to think. And it just made me think of CTAs. You know, we're, we have these arguments, we have this math, we have these performance and the track records, and no one wants to listen and believe uh, in what we do. And it sounds frustrating. And then we, we're, we're prone to say, well, we're not doing a good job of making this argument. Uh, no, we're doing a fine job. It's just that people can only handle what they can handle and believe what they can believe, and they're going to be heavily influenced by recent performance. And 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 to that point, uh, Jerry, you, you know what they say? They say that a um, you know a compelling offer is ten times better than a convincing argument, and I think that's really what. You know, our industry as a whole have been trying to do for many years. We're trying to convince people that you know what we're doing is is good for a, an overall portfolio. But I do think we need to maybe change a little bit and and start thinking in the terms of how do we make the convincing or the sorry the compelling the compelling offer instead. How do we phrase that? How how do we talk about it? Now, of course. I've heard you often say, well, you know, what do you don't like about trend following? You know, don't you like the diversification? Don't you like the discipline, the risk management? I mean, of course, people would say, yeah, no, I do like that. That does sound well. But but it is, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, trying to convince people of something that they maybe not really are ready to believe is, you know, that's a hard thing to do. A follow-up to that was um, reminded me of some studies I've read that try to explain the performance of trend following and why it works. And when I believe was something goes along the lines that there's a delayed reaction, the fundamentals or the news is uh, it's out and it just people re react in a delayed way that keeps the trends kind of going. And um, so he says here, there's this gap in time when people want to make sure they read it on some crawler somewhere that's telling them it's confirmed and it's safe and they're not going to be wrong alone. And then I followed up by saying a willingness to be wrong alone is an edge. And I think that has something to do with it as well, yeah. is that being wrong by investing in a lot of CTAs, boy, you're going to be alone. And that's, gonna, and that's yeah. not going to feel nearly as good as, well, I, all, all my buddies and I, we lost a lot of money last week in the stock market. And so that's just more comforting. And it's the whole idea of striking out and being willing to be alone and wrong uh, in the short term is an edge yeah. that CTAs have and anyone who um, trades systematically. Yeah. Uh, Mohammed El-Aryan gave a talk uh, uh, last year at uh, or the earlier this year, I think it was, at at Context. And, and, and I've heard this quoted before, but he was talking about this thing about being you know, conventionally wrong uh, is where people want to be rather than being unconventionally right. And it's, you know, that you're absolutely spot on. I mean, that is just something people are, are, are rarely uh, willing to entertain, uh, for sure. Any comments from your side, Moritz? Um, 
Well, thank you. Uh, summed it all up perfectly. Okay. Uh, conventionally but, wrong. I mean, there's. I, I don't remember who exactly said that, but there was that quote which I still have uh, in my head in um, like September two thousand and eight when when Lehman defaulted. There was uh, one person saying, "If you made money in September of two thousand and eight, you were doing something wrong." Right. And then when you look at um, some of the records of of the CTAs. <laughs> they made a lot of money then. <laughs> we all did. We all did. So we must be doing something wrong. Something wrong. That's true. That's true. Right. Let's tackle a couple of questions. And here is one that, um, and and I will, uh, it's from uh, Mohit, who has sent in quite a few questions. This is one that we've, or I have kicked a little bit to the side for a couple of weeks, because as I mentioned, uh, Mohit, we, um, you, you want to know about uh, moving average systems, position sizing, stops, et cetera, et cetera. And, and actually, none of us really use moving average systems in 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 within the firms we we work with. So, uh, but we're going to do our best, of course. Uh, we are up for a challenge. Um, so, um, so who wants to kick uh, the ball out and talk a little bit about? You know, moving average uh, as a strategy, as a way to to do trend following and. Um, you know, the entry exit mechanisms, you know, the stops, etc, uh, etc. Et uh, does anyone want to just kick off? Well, maybe we can kick it off with a, uh, a real simple idea and then uh, yeah. see how we go from there and become more, um, you know, detailed and complex as, as we go along if, if need be. I mean, go for know, it. A, a popular indicator in the moving average space is the 200 day simple moving average that's followed by a lot of people. A lot of people look at that. Um, you can see the media writing about that um, that indicator because it has been seen as providing support and resistance when you look at that on a chart level. But so in simple terms, how the strategy could work is to use um, the cross of the price. If price goes above the 200-day moving average, that would mean a long signal. And if the price goes uh, below the 200-day moving average, that would be a short signal of the exit the exit signal for the existing long position. And then you could think about, well, if that long signal happens, say you're using closing prices or settlement prices, then um, you would initiate the position as of the next day's open or the next day's close. Uh, for instance, you would calculate a certain position size that you would attach uh, to that position, which um, you know all of us believe should be a function of recent volatility and, you know, uh, price fluctuation in that market and then and then write that position until you have the exit hit. Um, you can then become more complex, uh, which we can you know continue to debate, but maybe maybe we'll hear Jerry on that before we do that. Yeah, I think using the moving averages are perfectly fine. Um, they're highly correlated to breakouts. Um, recent articles, talking bad about the 200-day moving average as it relates to the S&P 500, um, try to leave out obvious uh, improvements to the 200-day moving average in order to prove their point that the 200-day moving average is not a good method. <clears throat> but um, I, there's, in the public domain, there's so many good ideas, 50 crossing the 200, um, the Golden Cross, it's shocking how well that can work. I think that's the proper time frame for most of us, a longer-term approach. You can stay in some long-term trends if you wait for the 50 to go above the 200 and then exit 
when the 50 goes below the 200. So it's out there. It's performance numbers are out there. It's shockingly good. Um, I prefer breakouts versus uh, the moving averages. <clears throat> Primarily, I think breakouts work better because they're harder. Uh, that moving average is so wonderful and nice that at every day, every positive day in the uptrend, it gets a little bit closer. My moving average moves up closer. I'm locking in profits. Uh, the breakout is not as reliable. It uh, is a stair step. Uh, today's big move up, it may have n no impact on the uh, breakout exit at all, uh, may not even move it. And uh, so since that's uh, very painful and things people really don't like about breakouts, they're probably better. Uh, so that sort of perversity in, uh, pervades all of my uh, trading ideas that if it's hard, if it uh, creates seemingly bigger drawdowns, then it's probably uh, better. Uh, but yeah, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with moving averages. There's They're not better, probably too much worse than anything else. Yeah, no, I agree with those uh, thoughts as well. Uh, and and, and Mohit, uh, here's another way of, of thinking of how to build up a system using moving averages. So instead of just focusing on one moving average crossover, which, you know, in fairness, some people do, and, and that might work well. But if you want to kind of diversify your entries a little bit, what you could do is you could you could do four different uh, moving average crossover combinations, and you could give them each a weight of one. So that means if they're all long if all four of them have crossed to to long positions you would ha get a, a, f a full score of four so each you give them a, a, a one so that means four and and that means you have a full position clearly if one of them then turns down and goes short then you have three long and one short so you have a, a, a net of two so that means you could be half long and if two of them are short and two of them are long, you could be neutral. So it's a way for you to, and vice versa when it goes to the downside. So it's a way for you to scaling in and scaling out because you ask about stops. Moving average systems usually don't use stops per se because the stop is also usually a reversal uh, when when the moving average cross over to the, the other way around. So, But anyway, if you combine four and gave them a, an equal weight or you could have eight and you give them an equal weight, you can kind of scale in and scale out. And and I think that's generally something that that we all believe is a good idea. You shouldn't rely on just one time frame and, and, and so on and so forth because that can be uh, tricky from, from time to time. You also asked about position sizing and correlation. I think that is probably something you have to look into um, on your own in terms of how much uh, can you risk because it depends on how many markets you trade, how much capital you trade, how much risk you're willing to take uh, in terms of, of drawdowns. And correlations, um, there are different ways you can look at correlations, but uh, one of the ways to do it, of course, if you built some kind of correlation uh, matrix that is part of your risk management, uh, then clearly correlations, uh, you know, based on markets or positions, uh, could be relevant uh, to to some extent. Or you can just choose a very well diversified portfolio of markets, and then by default, that is your, uh, you know, that's where you're you're happy with those markets. So you have some, uh, you know, uh, less correlated markets uh, in 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 amongst them. So I think hopefully that's helpful, uh, Mohit. Thanks for your patience, and um, let's jump to a question here from Paul. <laughs> 
And I think, Paul, we answered your first question or your second question last month, which I was about, or last week, I should say, which is about whether we all trade the front month. And I think uh, the answer to that was yes. But then you followed up with another question, and that goes to a comment that we made in an earlier episode about um in this case it was moritz who has a uh, who works for a firm that is not considered as a cta and therefore the aum that he manages doesn't show up in the cta uh, combined aum so to speak and of course what you're asking is um are the, you know what to what extent do we think there's a lot of investors out there be that pension funds or insurance companies or whoever might have a lot of money under management who utilizes trend following Yet the AUM does not show up in the trend following official $350 billion under management or so. Um, so, Moritz, Jerry, do you have any sense of how big the the true space is, so to speak, if you broaden out the, the uh, definition a bit to include end investors using trend following in some way, shape or form? Well, first of all, I think I need to make a correction about the uh, the front month markets. That'll be real quick. There's there's one category of markets where I'm not necessarily trading the front month only, and those are the short term interest rates. So something of course, like yeah, dollar and things like that. Sure, that may be you know three years out or something like that. Yeah, true, very true. Good um, point. So that's just one. And that's general. That's not not just you, uh, Mort. Of course, that is you probably well. something general uh, in the CTA community that you, yeah. for when it comes to euro dollar, your eyeball, short sterling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you don't really trade the front month. It's too volatile. Exactly. Yeah. Things like yeah. that. So just uh, just to uh, to have that hundred percent clear. Um, as far as the uh, internalization of trend following goes. Mm, that, that's happening. I mean, um, I've heard that certain pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, uh, they do that. Um, um, and I, I have no idea how to quantify that size. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'd, I'd like yeah. to know that myself. Sure. But it's definitely out there and, and it's probably not. Yeah. And it's probably not insignificant. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably also safe to say that it's much larger than it used to be 10 years ago. Yeah, because deep down, everybody is like, they're like um, hidden trend followers. They don't like trend following per se, but they they still do it, uh, which is kind of fun uh, in, in some respect. Any any views on this, Jerry? I have, a, I have a different view. I mean, at the same time, one of my purposes in life in this podcast is to promote trend following. I really dislike hearing about so many people trend following. It'd be better if there weren't so many. Uh <laughs> The Eckhart article, um, great article, genius man. Um, I was really happy that he, his average holding period is eight days. You know, he's, yeah. I don't need someone that smart um, competing with me and my average holding period might be close to a year. So I was happy about that. And I'm always wondering uh, when I hear about another great, a new great trader, uh, my first question is always, well, are they a long-term trend follower? And if the answer is no, I'm very happy about that. So I want people to like it, and I want that to uh, mean more AUM for the three of us especially, but don't like it too much uh, and start doing it along with the three of us. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Jerry. Now, John sends a question to us, which is more about some of the terms that we throw around in our conversations, and maybe we just talk a little bit about them um, 
and some of them I'm not so sure we even use, but uh, maybe we do have an opinion about it. So, so first of all, you talk a little bit about if we can just define alpha, and I think um, that's probably uh, easily done. Alpha is usually associated with the outperformance that you deliver compared to your benchmark, and I think. To some extent in the CTA space, I mean, you can argue that it's a little bit difficult perhaps to say what exactly is your benchmark. On the other hand, there are three or four that are often quoted, and I actually mention them uh, in each week's episode when I go through the performance. But in our case, probably the one that comes closest is what's called the the SOCGEN trend uh, following index. Um, And so anything we can do to deliver better returns then that, for example, would be considered uh, alpha. Then you talk about crisis alpha and smart beta and implied volatility. Um, why don't uh, you, Jerry or, or Moritz, talk a little bit about those terms that we come across from time to time as well? Yeah. Um, so those were implied volatility, smart beta? Uh, smart beta and crisis alpha, Okay, I think crisis alpha, we touched on that. What that means is the ability of especially ACTA to um, to perform really well during periods of equity duress, right? Most people look at equities. We've said that earlier in this, in this episode. So equities go down, your CTA performance goes up. And if that's the case, then that's equated to crisis alpha. Um, Implied volatility, I'm not sure if we ever spoke about implied volatility, but um, volatility measures fluctuations. Implied volatility is the expected volatility of a certain instrument for a uh, defined period of time in the future. So for instance, options, uh, their value, they um, is derived from implied volatilities. Um, I'm not sure if we want to go into more detail there, but that is implied vol. And then smart beta, that is such a broad and difficult topic for me that <laughs> I don't know if it's smart. I don't really know what it is. It is, I think, to the largest part, a, a very nice marketing term that uh, you know firms came up with better ways of passive investing, passive long-only uh, investing uh, even um, by you know assigning different ways to... Um, uh, to stocks or instruments that are included in an index. So for instance, weighting stock by uh, sales or revenue numbers or all sorts of ratios as opposed to market capitalization. I think this is how it started. Whether that's smart or not, I don't know. <laughs> that's fair enough. Convexity is a word that comes up from time to time. Anyone want to comment on the word convexity some people use it more than others so i don't think we use it a lot actually but uh... convexity um yeah okay so convexity means that you have a nonlinear uh reaction um to to an event right so if say you know using using options here again options are nonlinear uh, and therefore convex instruments in their behavior, you could buy a put option on the S&P 500. And if the S&P 500 then drops, um, um, say by one, you could make a gain of larger than one um, from that option. So that is a convex uh, behavior there. And and the more the S&P then drops and the more that option becomes uh, close to at the money or even in the money, um, 
the larger that reaction becomes. So, so there you have that, that increase in that reaction behavior, um, which is convex. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Now, uh, Mohit sent another question, and that was regarding uh, how to account for uh, correlation while sizing the positions. We talked about that a little bit, and but then you follow up, Mohit, with a question about whether uh, looking at a, in the rear view mirror the analysis of correlation, whether that's fallible or not. Well, you can only look at correlations historically. We obviously don't know what the correlations will be going forward. So, so you have to find a time frame that you feel um, is not too long, so that it takes too long for all these correlation changes to show up in your in your portfolio, but it's not too short that it seems to be moving around all the time and therefore you keep changing your positions based on that. Uh, again, um, it's probably an area where you need to, do, it's not an area where we can really give you um, like a, a guide to how to uh, incorporate correlations in, in your risk management, but there's, I'm sure, lots of things that have been written about it. Um, so thanks for those questions um anything uh anything else in terms of questions that you uh here's another one actually here's another one from dave um Rahi, and this is for you guys uh he writes with regard to to your medium to long-term futures trading systems what is the average duration time in the trade uh, of your winners obviously the losers take care of themselves but i'm curious if they track the average duration and they being you guys in days weeks um in terms of the winning uh months so maybe you have a a, a quick answer to that moritz and and jerry um i'm longer term than almost anyone i've ever talked to <clears throat> and i i defend myself by saying i wouldn't do it if the numbers didn't justify it. I mean, we should all try to be as short-term as possible. Now, the drawdowns will be less, and that's the problem, was that uh, what it takes to prevent that S&P drawdown getting short at the 50-day low or the 20-day low or whatever you know, uh, parameter, it's not overall profitable. So I would love to be able to do that. Make more money, have fewer drawdowns, provide crisis alpha. But So I think um, a longer-term holding period is wonderful. It works well for me. Um, a year, you know, I think another concept that I like is, um, is the philosophy of, I want to make it hard to get in and, um, to the trade. I want to see some strong trend. And so I want to not do the trade unless it's kind of really powerful and strong. And then once I'm in, I need a compelling reason to get out it hasn't moved in a month or two. No, it's just sitting there. That's fine. It's crashing. Yes. Now I'm starting to see a compelling reason that the trend is massively reversing. So that philosophy, I think, uh, do nothing until it really looks like you should start doing something. It's great for commissions. It's great for slippage. Uh, it's also, I think, a good philosophy. And it led me to a longer term approach, you know, what does it take to stay in? What parameter keeps me into these massive trends that last for a year or two? And yet, I don't overstay and give back a majority of the profits in a week or two. So this is, a, I think, a, the way to approach these issues. Look at charts, look at long term trends, look at weekly charts, 
that fits your personality? Can you hang on? Are you strong enough to withstand those drawdowns that come with a 50 crossing the 250? Uh, do you really, are you really serious about making uh, big money in the big trends? Because that also comes with the big drawdowns. Indeed. What about you, Moritz? In terms of winning trade duration? Yeah, short short answer on that. It's between seven and eight months, um, I believe, okay. uh, in that systematic trend following strategy. And um, yeah, everything that Jerry just said is 100% correct. I mean, I'm, I'm not trading that as long term as, as he does, even though I don't know the details, but by the sounds of it. Um, but yeah, seven to eight months. Um, if if that that trend continues just like jerry said um there's no reason to to get out if the price just starts flatlining just sitting there on a on a plateau you know you have to have the the patience to wait for for that price to come down and and hit your trading stop sure 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 and for our i would say for our part we're probably in between moritz and and jerry in terms of uh, we're certainly on the longer side as well um but it doesn't mean that we can't react uh, more quickly to a uh, reversal um, as i mentioned earlier today um, we, we we have seen that this month in october where we've gone you know from being long to to short overall equities um so you know so we have some other other ingredients in the model that allows us to do that from time to time, but uh, certainly that's not uh, ha doesn't happen that often. And 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 on average, the winning trades are several months, uh, uh, as as Moritz and, and Jerry indicated. Then we had a tweet uh, to the three of us from Right Wick. I think it is from at Right Wick. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for your excellent podcast series. Question. Could you discuss, as much as proprietary allows, what goes into your backtesting system infrastructure? I'm programming backtest currently, and the topic is top of mind. So um, I can say from our point of view uh, that we we do all of this stuff in in a system called MATLAB. So if you're familiar with that, that will mean something to you. I'm not a programmer, so I can't really give you much detail in terms of, of how it's set up, but um, we, we use that platform and it seems to um, seems to me that it has a lot of advantages, but of course a lot of people program their own uh, backtesting uh, infrastructure. Um, and um, as long as you have uh, also, as long as you also know how to use uh, or, or what kind of methodology to use for doing backtests so you don't end up with everything being uh you know in sample you know then that um that is obviously some of the risks for overfitting uh you know parameters etc cetera, etc cetera. so but anyway that's how we do it um i don't know uh jerry or moritz if you have some comments about backtesting platform systems uh we use matlab as well um i'm i'm a big proponent of excel whenever possible looking at long-term sure. charts to get an idea of what works. Uh, I was bought a copy of System Writer in 1988, which turned into TradeStation. I uh, recommend if you're not a programmer to find a programmer who can program at least into TradeStation. Or so, there's a lot of packages out there. That's uh, a big task. Entry, exit, markets, correlation, uh, money management, it's a it's a big it's a big task. It took 
you know, we are where we are today after the three of us after 20 to 30 years. So it's a, it's a long project. Yeah. I've tried out many, many systems. Um, as Jerry just said, TradeStation, I, I, I forgot the name it was called uh, before it was called TradeStation, but TradeStation was a good start for me. It, it runs on a scripting language called Easy Language, which isn't too hard to learn and it can do a lot of things. And just looking at my computer, it, it does have all sorts of software packages on it, which I've used over time. There's things like multi-charts, which runs on power language. There's things in R and MATLAB and, and, and Python. But also, like for the first tests, the first like idea generation, you come up with a thought that you think is interesting that you really want to follow, follow up on. Excel is just fantastic. And it's become so much better over the years. Like the 64-bit version of that is, if you have a powerful computer, is really, really good. You can do a lot of things. Um, as far as daily operations are concerned, that, you know, Excel may be a bit, um, you know, not, not that great in that context. And you can use, um, you know, more, more programmed tools for that. But, you know, it, it's kind of like, like an assembly belt where there's a database in SQL and, you know, it takes on data from data providers such as CSI or Bloomberg and it can connect to a couple of those sources and then runs code and looks at accounts and does, you know, produces orders and reconciles them. So it's, it's a mix of things, Java, C sharp, things like that. Great stuff. Good insight. Good insight. Um, I think that's probably it in terms of questions for this week. We do appreciate you coming up with uh, great questions for us, and we will always attempt to answer them. So uh, by all means, keep them uh, keep them coming. Uh, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com and put question in the subject line, and we will be happy to try and tackle those um, while maybe you think of some kind of closing points that we can uh, bring up this week let me just mention a little bit about the industry performance that we always talk about so these are numbers are again as of thursday um so a couple of days ago um and we have the not much changed actually from thursday to thursday um uh, interestingly enough but the beta 50 index which is actually not the 50 largest is more like the 20 largest CTAs uh, is down 2.63 for the month of October down 5.15 for the year uh, SOCGEN CTA index down 3.17 down 6.52 for the year the SOCGEN trend index that is probably the one we track the most is down 4.88 down 7.91 for the year and the short term traders index uh, down 0.13% and up a quarter percent this year and then finally the bridge alternatives index which is a flat fee fund index uh, is down 3.79 down 9.33 for the year any final thoughts um, any final topics we should debate this week happy trading next week uh, stay the course Stay the course, absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up this week's uh, conversation. We hope you enjoyed it just as much as we enjoy making them for you. And if you felt you did, please do share and why not leave a rating and review on iTunes? It really does help promote uh, this show. From Jerry Moritz and me, 
Thank you so much. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.